1: Shalom. Hola y saludos a todos. Saluter la tua te lume. Mae lakmia. Salve te qui cum estis. Hartelijke groeten an iedereen. As salamu alaykum. Jung tang gota kabang le chao tang ho. Konnichiwa, o genki desu ka? Taikon ben yu. Ben hoa. Bonjour, don't move on. Sia ni bingalela makawai. Snefisela in conso end. dumelisa Hello from the children of planet Earth.
0: You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. We are taking back the controls, not to restore order, but to promote chaos. Unpredictable human creativity is not the problem, but the solution. Join the party, find the others, throw off the yoke of surveillance and manipulation, and celebrate the quirky anomalous behaviors and approaches that make people so much more than robots, algorithms, or consumer profiles. You are not a number. You are a human being. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Next week, we'll be recording our first live Team Human events in San Francisco at Gray Area for the Arts Classic Grand Theater. Friday, February 16th, I'll be speaking with internet legend Howard Rheingold, and the author of Autonomous and founder of IO9, Anneli Newitz. Saturday, February 17th, I'll be engaging with interactive artist Lauren McCarthy, Gnostic theorist Eric Davis, and founder of Gray Area, Josette Melcher. All proceeds will go to Gray Area Organization. Members of the Team Human Patreon get in free. Visit the Team Human Slack for instructions or join Team Human at patreon.com slash teamhuman. To buy tickets directly from the venue, go to grayarea.org. Playing for Team Human this week, Institute for the Future, research director, Boing Boing editor, and Voyager Golden Record producer and Grammy winner, David Peskovitz.
2: You know, the Voyager record was a gift from humanity to the cosmos, but it was equally a gift to humanity.
0: David will be speaking with us about how talking to aliens teaches us about who we are ourselves. It's time to intervene on behalf of humans. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. So I just turned in the Team Human manuscript. I'm tentatively calling it Team Human, 101 Arguments for People. And it's motivated me to kind of hit a reset button And explain to people, our new and growing listenership, what are we doing here? You know, what is Team Human about? Well, this is what it's about. I am arguing for human participation in the future. I'm arguing for a place for humans. How ever incredible it may sound that that needs to be argued for. What it means is arguing against the technologists who mean to replace us with algorithms or upload consciousness to a silicon chip. And it also means taking a stand against a certain breed of free market corporatists who see human beings as an impediment to the necessary and infinite growth of the market. A company with human labor can't scale, they'll tell you. But it also means arguing against a certain breed of environmentalists who believe human beings have overstayed our welcome and should be expunged from the natural ecosystem. I mean, yeah, human beings do suck in a lot of ways, but we're all we've got. In Team Human, and here on Team Human, I argue that human beings are special, conscious, and social beings who can actually leave the Earth better than we found it. Plants and animals are great, don't get me wrong But we human beings are special in our own right We are aware of what's going on We recognize patterns We make symbols We comprehend dimension We ask questions like Where did we come from? What are we here for? Is there a moral order to the universe? And if there is, what's our part in it? Are there enduring laws of physics? Or does reality itself evolve? Is time an illusion? Are we doing something unique and as an exercise in free will? Or are we simply reenacting what's already happened? Occupying that liminal space between those who would replace humans with machines and those who would eliminate humans for the benefit of the rest of living species is precarious, but it's necessary. This is the place between the on-off, yes-no, left-right, black-white of a highly digital culture. It's not a rejection of the digital or a throwback to some pre-digital sensibility, but rather it's a retrieval of the human values that should be, that must be driving our progress into this next landscape. We deserve to intervene on our own behalf. We must stop optimizing humans for technology or the market and instead optimize our technology and the market for us humans. Our truest, best welfare is also the best welfare of our planet and our sister species. And there's nothing that helps us become more aware of who and what we are than contemplating our first contact with an alien species. America, in the 1970s, preparing its Voyager spacecraft for the stars, was like an adolescent kid looking in the mirror before a first date. Who are we really? And how do we want to present ourselves to the world? The pinnacle of this effort was a golden record stowed on the Voyager probes, which contained music and sounds of the Earth. My friend David Peskovitz was inspired by the record as a child and vowed to create an edition that expressed the optimism and humanity that went into this extraordinary collection of audio. As the Secretary
2: General of the United Nations,
0: an organization of 147 member states who represent almost all of the human inhabitants of the planet Earth, I send greetings on behalf of the people of our planet. We step out of our solar system into the universe seeking only peace and friendship, to teach if we are called upon, to be taught if we are fortunate. We know full well that our planet and all its inhabitants are but a small part of this immense universe that surrounds us, and it is with humility and hope that we take this step. That was Kurt Waldheim, Secretary General of the United Nations, speaking to any aliens who may have found the Voyager probe, its golden record, and a turntable to hear his message of greetings. The Voyager golden record project was a statement of unbridled optimism from the era of Jimmy Carter, an audio sampler of the Earth's sounds and music carried on the Voyager missions through the solar system and beyond. The entire collection has been restored, remastered, and released by Boing Boing co-founder and Institute for the Future researcher, David Peskovitz, who also happens to be one of my best friends in the world. Thank you for joining Team
2: Human. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Always (laughs) so happy to be here talking with you, Doug.
0: We met in the early cyber days, you know, back when yes. Timothy Leary was alive and was one of the, you know, preeminent spokespeople for the Internet. When Mondo 2000 was the big uh, Internet magazine or the the closest thing to a digital culture magazine and Wired was still, you know, a twinkle in Louis Rossetto's eye. And this, though, the the Voyager records are from an even earlier era of Technology optimism, you know the when when space was the frontier instead of cyberspace, and the Voyager golden yeah. record, uh, for you obviously became a, a big symbolic touchstone of this this optimism about the human project.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, in the early nineties, the the Voyager one and Voyager two were already billions of miles away from Earth, carrying this you know beautiful. Piece of conceptual art, uh, this talisman to futures thinking that, that I think connects us to our humanity. I was seven years old when the Voyagers launched. And, you know, when you're seven years old, and, and, you know, my brother, older brother, was a space enthusiast. And so that was in our house, that excitement around space. And, you know, you hear that a group of people made a phonograph record and attached it to these spaceships um, as a message for extraterrestrials, it sparks the imagination. Um, and, And that stuck with me, you know, really through my life. And then it was right around the time that I met you, I was a grad student at UC Berkeley, and I was there studying journalism under Timothy Ferris as my advisor. And Tim Ferris was the producer of the original Voyager record, and I used to pepper him with questions um, about that. He was he was Sagan's good friend, and you know was part of the this incredibly visionary team that created this thing.
0: We should we should say in two or three sentences what what the record is. Sure. So
2: the Voyager record is is a story of our planet expressed in sounds, images, and science. It has music from. Bach to Beethoven to blind Willie Johnson to Solomon Island's panpipes. It has a beautiful sound poem of birds, a train, a baby's cry, a kiss, spoken greetings in dozens of human languages. And then it has more than 100 images that are encoded in analog as audio that, that depict who and and what we are on planet Earth. Carl Sagan, the famous astronomer and creator of Cosmos, he chaired the, the committee that put this together. And Frank Drake, who, who's best known as the, the father for the scientific search for ET, was the technical director. Anne Drianne, uh, was a creative director. And the journalist and science writer Timothy Ferris was the producer of the record. John Lomberg designed it. And then Linda Salzman Sagan organized the, the greetings from planet Earth. And then they approached NASA and said, will you stick this on the Voyager? Well, basically NASA, you know, they had already done the Pioneer plaque which went on the Pioneer probes a few years before. That's the the famous plaque with the naked man and woman and it has the pulsar map that shows where we are in the solar system. And after that, I guess NASA had asked Carl if he was interested in creating another message for the Voyager missions. And working with Frank Drake, who he also worked with on the on the Pioneer plaque, Frank came up with the idea of of sending a phonograph record, which was brilliant for so many reasons. One reason is because, you know, it can last based on the materials. You know, it's a copper phonograph record protected by a gold plated aluminum cover that they expect to last for billions of years <laughs> so long, long long after we're this burnt up ember right. um you know uh, this thing is still going to be you know essentially traveling among the stars it's
0: great the original log tail
2: <laughs> yeah i mean you know it's it, it, tim Ferriss as he as he wrote in our liner notes which i thought was brilliant because he said that, you know they're on a you know they're on a mission through space but they're also on a mission through time mm. right which are Maybe the same thing, but that's that's another conversation. So exactly,
0: and it's weird though. There's there's a tremendous optimism, not just for for us exploring the world or the universe, but optimism about the intentions of aliens. <laughs> We're going to give them this thing. Going to show them. Look at our. This is us. You know. This is as much as we know about ourselves. Here's where we live. Um, Here's a map (laughs) to a nice...
2: (laughs) Right. Here's a map on on where to get there. You know, people say that a lot. And I was recently with... um, I was on a panel with Annie Drianne, who is... Sagan's widow, she was the creative director of, of the Voyager record. And, and um, she, you know, co-wrote Cosmos and also, you know, the new Cosmos Mm -hmm. series, which is, which is fantastic. And someone asked her that question, you know, how smart is it to, to say, hello, this is us. And here we are. And, you know, her response was really quite moving to me, which was, you know, she said that it's, it's, a little ridiculous to think that a civilization advanced enough to intercept one of these uh, probes and read the scientific diagram that explains how to play this record and you know listens to the record and and looks at the images that are encoded and then follows the map it, it's a little ridiculous to think that they wouldn't be advanced enough to realize you know and not be interested in going to to destroy us um <laughs> they, they've hopefully evolved beyond that level of of thinking. And, you know, I think that that's very optimistic, but I also think it's kind of, you know, it it makes sense to me. It's also indicative of,
0: of a weird little kind of interregnum in human history or, or Western human history. You know, the, the, as far as NASA was concerned, the moon missions, the Apollo missions, ended around 1972. Then we get the oil crisis and the sort of the all these. This was just around the time that the developing nations of the world started pushing back against American and European imperialism, and it almost it's indicative of a kinder, gentler, less agro form of space colonization. In other words, instead of going, we're not going to send Apollo missions on these giant rockets to colonize these planets. It's like we kind of don't have the money and the oil and the strength and the science for that. But we can do this other thing. It almost feels a little bit more female to me in a way, as if we're going to send out these little things with almost little pollen... Pollinated little communications probes, as if to attract and receive visitors, rather than going out and colonizing
2: their planets. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that the idea then was that the Voyagers were going anyway, and it wasn't until NASA had approached and talked with Carl Sagan, who, who was very close at the time with the agency, and with Frank Drake, who we know came up with the the SETI equation, the Drake equation they had already sent out on the Pioneers this plaque, this drawing. It's the famous one of the naked man and woman, mm-hmm. and there was a greeting. And then it was Frank Drake who thought, well, you know, why don't we send out a phonograph record because we can include so much more information on that. And so it was almost this, not an afterthought, but kind of. It was very separate from the from the rest of the of the Voyager mission, which was an incredibly audacious mission, you know, as it is. I mean, these things are... 12 billion miles away from us and yet still sending data back every single day. And yet you and I can't have a phone call without the call dro- <laughs> dropping out across the country. You know, um, but but I think that, that this idea of exploration, of trying to understand what's out there was incredibly important and, and captured the, the public's imagination, maybe even more so than it does now you know it's almost like the what we read about now. You know I, I'm excited about the commercialization of space in some way because NASA doesn't have any money, and I think this stuff is still very important to do. But let's face it, the reason I mean there's, it's called. The private space industry or the commercial space industry for a reason. It's to commercialize. You know, can we mine asteroids? Right. You know, can we build can we build hotels on the moon? Right. I it's mean, back
0: to that. You know, know, you know, and I hate to get too archetypal about it, but it's back to that kind of boys in their toys. Let's go to some other place and dig some crap out of there and bring it back and make a lot of money. Or worst case, give me a, a plan B for when the world blows up.
2: Yeah, and then hopefully we have this other group of people who are saying, "Well, at least they're doing that because now we can get our experiments out there and we can try to do some, some research and some science." Right. While we're there, and I have to wonder a little bit about, you know, I I still don't think, even though you read a lot more about about SpaceX and and you know their Falcons uh, rockets and some space tourism stuff, it's almost I, the message really isn't so much one of of discovery of the mystery of space of you know wonder of where we are in the universe and what's humanity's place it's it, that's not the story that's really being being told but yet that was the story even if if NASA wasn't trying to tell the story that's what we heard you know yeah. in the in the 60s and 70s but the other
0: story we were getting in the late 70s with the voyager Mission and the Voyager Golden Record was, I think, the the kind of the realization that we had of the physical and environmental limits of the planet. You know, uh, Francis Moore LePay, who was a guest a few weeks ago, you know, she had just sold three million copies of Diet for a Small Planet. You know, pe- uh, right, people were aware that we were on, you know, an operating manual for Spaceship Earth, we're this little yes. thing, and it, it it was a very different sort of energy for NASA. It was, it was a Jimmy Carter teaching us the metric system <laughs> model of the space
2: travel. But it is. That's exactly right. And Jimmy Carter's message, um, he has a message that's not spoken, but it's, it's a text. It, it, it's, it's typed out. And, and one of the photographs that was encoded on the Voyager record is this beautiful message uh, as a greeting from, from humanity. And, 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 you know, I think we should remember that, that the last image that Voyager took before they had to turn off the cameras, you know, to conserve power for the other sensors, Carl Sagan convinced the imaging team to quite literally turn the Voyager around and take this this image of most of the solar system with Earth, um, and it became that's the famous pale blue dot image. Mm-hmm. You know, as as Carl said, that's home, that's everything, that's everyone we've ever known. To paraphrase him, and again, that's exactly what you're talking about. That's about thinking about you know, how really small we are and how fragile we are and, and how delicate we are. And in that way, you know, the Voyager record was a gift from humanity to the cosmos, but it was equally a gift to humanity, you know, a reminder of what we can achieve when we're at our best. And I think, you know, I think it's a, it's a message of, of hopeful futurism, that the future really is up to all of us. Well,
0: and the other thing you said when you were talking about Jimmy Carter's message, that it was a, a, a message kind of from... Humanity—that this was the first time that we were thinking about ourselves as this thing, as Team Human, speaking to something yes. else.
2: Yes, yes, and I think that there was—I, um, you know—I remember reading. I think uh, uh, Carl had written, um, or someone else, that that there was some. Controversy around um, Carter's message, even when when that got out, because people would perceive him or did perceive him as you know this one worlder, as if somehow that was, of course, a bad thing. Which to many people it was, because you know we're in the middle of the Cold War here, and you know it, it wasn't. Uh, you know we weren't particularly united, not that we are now either. But I think it, it was that that message that you described. It was a team human message that he wrote. Yeah, but I did want
0: to get to that one worlder. Possibility here. I mean, th- this was also the height of United States propaganda sponsored by Rockefeller and the CIA to Europe to try to change the way Europeans and communists, and particularly Eastern Bloc people, thought about America. And we sent them weird. Art, You know, strange, you know, Kandinsky yes. paintings and documentaries about Times Square. And we made ourselves look to Europe anyway, much, you know, more gay friendly and interracial and hold our hands, you know, as if uh, we were promoting a, a spirit of internationalism. And this project feels very much like that, that kind of artsy, international, everybody's included statement that that ultimately, I think we thought as Americans, would favor America
2: and the free world. Well, a couple of things on that. One is, it is a very global message. And that was, from the music side of things, Tim Ferriss told me that that was you know, they had two, he, he at least had two, you know, measures of success of the project. One, that the music was representative of many cultures, not just the white folks who made it, you know, who put the record together, but also that it was a good record, which it absolutely is. But, but they also made a very conscious decision early on, led by Carl, I think, to not include images of war, of famine, of poverty, Primarily because, as I understand it, showing an image of a, a nuclear cloud could be perceived as threatening. And then, in addition to that, you know, I, when you introduce yourself to somebody for the first time, you know, you don't say "Hi, nice to meet you." And then you open your, you know, closet full of skeletons. You want to put your best foot forward. And so, you know, while people criticize the record for being this utopian vision. Of life on planet Earth, I don't necessarily think that that's such a bad thing. Well,
0: no. I mean, it's certainly not a bad thing if we're talking about sending it to aliens. But when when we understand that another function of this record was propaganda back to Earth, it's propaganda from NASA to the planet saying, look, we're not an American military thing. We're part of the globe. We want to have an international space station. This is about peace and love and a higher level of human interaction. This is not political.
2: Right. No, it's absolutely not meant to be political. Um, you know, I mean, it's also why they didn't include um, any, you know, images of I think one slipped in in one of the cityscapes. But there's no images of churches because, you know, once you include, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a uh, Catholic church and a mosque, well, why aren't you including a synagogue then? Um, it is interesting.
0: You wonder today, I feel like we'd have to have, you'd have to have Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, but then once you include sure. that, now you're going to have to include every multicultural intersection that we've got. You know, it'd be really, it's, it's a very interesting thing. We're, we're much less melting pot, I think, now than we than we were at that moment.
2: Yeah. I mean, and people talk all the time. I mean, even people ask me, but I know that they ask Annie Drian, and, and Frank and, and, you know, everybody else who was involved in the original, what would you put on a record now? Hmm. And I think that that's sort of a, a, you know, an impossible question because now the answer people say, oh, well you could put the entire internet on a chip and, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, and, and send that up. I mean, do we want that? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, uh, 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 you know, or what, what song would you include differently you know uh, on the record but i think if you think of it as just you know it's true this record is not the story of planet earth but it is a story right Well, the interesting and it's thing is a story is, that resonates with people and
0: you you couldn't you wouldn't send a chip that's the interesting thing what i love about the record i mean and and i know it was out as some version of a of a cd or a cd rom earlier yeah. Yeah. but that it You're sending a physical artifact into
2: space. You're
0: not sending code, you're sending a thing.
2: I mean, don't you think that that matters? It does matter. And that's what, I mean, that's Frank Drake's genius, really, um, in coming up with the idea to actually send a record, is because it's, I mean, a record is a very, is a pretty basic way to transmit a lot of very rich information. Along with the record, it included a stylus, and the scientific diagram on the cover explains. Very clearly, if you look at it, w- the speed that the the record is supposed to spin, and where the stylus is supposed to be positioned, and then it has a diagram that explains how to convert encoded s- images that are sounds, kind of like a fax machine, back into into images. And in fact, you know, when we had access to the to the original master tapes, including the sounds of those encoded images that were better quality than than even on NASA's own site, um, we posted them, and someone based only on the information on the on the cover of the of the records jacket decoded them (laughs) and you know so this is not this is not you know if somebody if, if a civilization is smart enough to be able to intercept this thing it seems highly likely that they can figure out how to how to play the the audio on it for me on putting on
0: the record and maybe this just speaks to my biases, but the shock for me was the high fidelity of the recordings, that it felt like a lost art. You know, you put on, you hear the Stravinsky, and the fidelity of this whatever kind of 1970s Deutsche Grammophone German-engineered tube-recorded analog orchestra was like, oh my God, that's what we used to listen to?
2: I mean, oh yeah. Know? Well, that's. I mean, that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's. And I have to tell you. You know, I had heard this many times. It's been available in parts online. You know, I have the CD-ROM that has all of the audio on it. And from the beginning, when when my partner Tim Daly and I spoke with Tim Ferriss about it, uh, Tim kept urging us to. Find the masters, and basically telling us that we had no project unless we could find the masters. And we were both like, "This is probably not going to happen." Mm. Um, you know, we'll figure out another way to source this material. And he kept asking us. And so when they made the the record in seventy seven, CBS Records donated the studio time and the engineers, including Jimmy Iovine, amazingly. Oh enough, my god! To, yes, to, to make <laughs> the record. And so when they were finishing mastering it, and when they were finished. CBS Records put the tapes in their storage, which is an uh, iron mountain, which is uh, a converted uh, 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 literally an an iron iron, uh, mine. And they sat there for 40 years. And then thanks to, you know, we reached out to Sony Music and we weren't sure what their response would be. But Matt Kelly, who's this amazing archivist at Sony Music, said, let me take a look. And, you know, thanks to his deep research, he actually located these original master tapes, in their underground storage facility, brought them to New York, and uh, Tim Ferriss, Tim Daly, and I went to Battery Studios, which is a historic studio, and the engineer there had to bake the tapes, literally put them in an oven to make sure that the the material would stay on them long enough for us to digitize them at ultra-high resolution. And when he played them, we were absolutely blown away you know the blues and bach and blind willie johnson and chuck berry washed over us and it, it was absolutely sublime it was like nothing we had we had ever heard and you know the quality is is incredible and then once they were digitized bernie grunman in los angeles who was a legendary mastering engineer. He did Thriller and Aja and all these other amazing albums. He mastered the record and, and cut it for us. And so the quality is really is really phenomenal. And and some people even you know have said to us, oh well, you know, I hear some pops and clicks in some of the recordings or surface noise. And that's that was on the actual tapes because some of their source material was incredibly rare lacquers that Alan Lomax provided to them or some real-to-reel tapes you know, that they had, that they had patched together in order to, to create this record. But, you know, I think that that's, again, the quality that you're talking about, um, of playing the record speaks to the time it was created. You know, when I was talking with Tim Ferris about it, you know, and I said, Oh, well, you know, what was your friendship like with Carl, you know, before this project? And he said, Oh, well, Carl used to come over to my apartment in New York city and we would listen to records. Hmm. And I was like, well, "What is that? What What do you mean?" And he said, "Well, that's what we used to do, you know. He, Tim worked for Rolling Stone magazine, and he'd have a bunch of new records, and Carl would come over, and you know, they would sit around and and play records and sit there and listen to records. And people don't really do that as much, know, much anymore. That's
0: what I used. That's what we did when I was a teenager. <laughs> yes, but of course. I, but you pop on one of these records, and let's like let everyone listen to a little bit of say Johnny B. Good. Yes. song that we all know and we've all heard but i put it on and i'm first thing i think is well did they get him in to do is a different recording of this is this the same one why why can i hear the room tone in there and the the distance so it's like oh well maybe because they remastered it or what why does it sound different to me than the johnny be good i got used to
2: well, I mean they didn't do the Bernie was was very careful about not wanting to sort of add any and we appreciated any right. sort of modern kind of remastering. It was about trying to bring out the the original qualities of of the recording um you know which is why he's purposely also, you know, sort of left it warts and all in places because you know as soon as you cut out some pops, you cut out some other other frequencies, right? then but we I just might as say, well
0: auto-tune the guy's voice, and then maybe yeah, <laughs> then you're back at exactly <laughs> yeah.
2: exactly. So I mean, I think that's why that's why Tim Ferriss urged us, fortunately, to find those original master tapes, mm-hmm. and you know, it was you know, it was amazing. I have to say, you know, going into the battery studios and seeing these master tapes that haven't been touched until they were brought out since 1977, we opened the boxes and there's handwritten notes from both Tim Ferriss and Annie Drian with timing and sources. And there's there's even a, a great letter from Alan Lomax, the, the amazing musicologist who who, who provided a lot of the, the indigenous people's music that says, you know, here's a list of what I'm loaning you, Tim Ferriss, and you have to sign this and agree to return these, you know, rare lacquers and reels, you know, to me by such and such mm-hmm. date. And this is all in the, in the, in the boxes. And uh, again, that's just like, you know, this wasn't about, oh, let me send you some MP3s and see what you think. This was about tim ferris going over to alan lomax's apartment and where there's stacks of records and tapes and him throwing stuff at him and saying listen to this one listen to this weird russian drinking song and or you you listen to
0: let's say the the mahi mahi musicians of benin yes right (laughs) you listen to that and you think it, it, it recalls it's funny because my associations with this kind of music is sort of the world music scene when you know who is yes. it? Yeah, Peter Gabriel or somebody. They start unearthing. Peter, like, Gabriel, Peter Gabriel,
2: right, with his with his label. This was before. No,
0: before all of that. Yeah,
2: yeah, I mean, and my partner, my partner Tim Daly, who who you know, again, he's like a walking musicologist. You know, he said he describes it as almost you know the first world music. Compilation in many ways. There was not world music, you know. There, there's great stories about how you know they wanted an, a particular Indian raga on there, and the person who recommended it to them basically told them to not settle for anything else, and they simply couldn't find a copy. And then Annie happened to find a copy in the back of some Indian-owned appliance store uh, uh, in New York somewhere. I mean, it, you know, th- this music wasn't wasn't available right. it wasn't it simply wasn't around at the time
0: i mean i guess you've been listening to it all did you you've listened to the Nav- the navajo night chant
2: yes unbelievable i mean it's, it's unbelievable such
0: and- an intense um uh, uh i mean i guess we're playing it now so they could hear it
2: But it's such an intense, weird thing, and this was where did they find something like that? Well, so that's a great I mean these are great examples. um That one came out of some recordings that were uh, in the Library of Congress that I don't think were ever commercially available um, but that was part of the the fun and you know the the hardest part of this project was that we wanted to go about it the right way, which meant clearing all the rights and paying the rights holders. And, and so, you know, doing the, the Johnny be good, people would say, Oh, wasn't it hard to get the license for that? No. You know, we worked with rights workshop, which is a boutique rights agency, clearance agency. They know how to work with the labels and there's a process and you pay this much and you get the use of the, of the track. But a lot of the music was actually, uh, uh, some of it was never commercially released. And in fact, on the notes and even on the NASA page, sometimes the titles were wrong or there was just no information about who the artists were or where and when it was recorded. And so, you know, a great example of that, you, you might want to play one of my favorite of the tracks, this uh, Solomon Islands panpipe music. music. Mm-hmm. Um, all it said was the only information we had was that Alan Lomax provided a reel to reel tape that was sent to him by the Solomon Islands Broadcasting Corporation, um, which is a small radio station on the very small Solomon Islands. So we reached out to them and they said, you know, this is me calling them at two in the morning. And and they're saying, yeah, we, you know, they're awesome, but they're saying, you know, yes, we know it's on the record. We have no idea where the recording came from or who it is. (laughs)
1: Working
2: with, working with, musicologists in the region and researchers who we just reached out to who seemed to be knowledgeable. Um, one of them was incredibly helpful. He happened to be going to the Solomon Islands to the radio station for some other research project. While he was there, he was talking about our project. And a young woman said, oh, that's actually uh, uh, my grandfather, I think, is, is, you know, knows the musicians. They're from our village, and I think I'm related to them. And so she goes back to the village and we get this beautiful handwritten note from one of the surviving musicians explaining the context of when that was recorded, who the musicians were, where in the village it was recorded. And we said, you know, that's wonderful. And and he said he was so proud that it's, that it's you know, represents his culture in space and, and is excited for our release. And we said, well, you know, we want to send you royalties. And he said, oh, well, we're going to try to figure out how to set up a bank account for that. So, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, and and it was it was just amazing to connect with these people and and hear the stories that, that, you know, this information was just not available. And so that's one of the things that Tim Daly and I are most proud of is the information that's in the track list, um, because I don't think there's any more information that's possible to get. About many of these tracks,
0: well, and then that the legacy of the record, even in its in its retrieval, is so deeply humanistic. It you know the stories of the people that are are awakened, the connections that you make, the the just that that handle handling and care of of the music and people's rights and uh this and people's stories is you know a very inspiring you know, testimony
2: to humanism itself. It was just—I mean—that was the fun for us, mm. really. I mean that was that was that was the fun. You know, we have this thirty-second clip of music or one-minute clip of music, and we have very little to no information about it. And you know, suddenly we're able to, you know, contact the Library of Congress, and and you know, they direct us to somebody. Or, you know, in the case of the Navajo night chant, I contacted the 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 person who who heads the Navajo Nation Library. And he pointed me in some information and scanned some uh, uh, jackets that he had to see if maybe they were on these particular records. I mean, it's just, you know, in the story, you know, the story of the Voyager record, you know, gets people very excited and very interested when they hear it. And we just feel really fortunate to have been a conduit, I think, for, for, you know, for the project,
0: yeah, but it's but it's more than a meme. and it was what I mean. it just as just as the record is more than a, a digital codon, the project is more than a meme in that it's not just an idea. It touches people in in a different way, in an analog way, in a in a real world way. I mean, that's why it has to be a record. You can hold this thing,
2: you know. I think so. I mean I think that that's what, you know, and and you know, we read letters from Carl Sagan and and Tim Ferris, you know, Carl wanted to put out the record for many years as as a record and the labels told him that, you know, they simply couldn't clear all the rights because it was, you know, this label wouldn't work with this label and mm. wouldn't give it to this label. And, you know, so it, it just was something that just was very difficult to make happen. But yet, you know, I think 40 years later, things things are a little different. And I also, you know, the reality is that it wasn't a major label putting this out, having to call another major label to clear rights. It was me and Tim Daly and our designer, Lawrence Azarad, doing this on our own through a Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. And that's as as a labor of love i mean we had absolutely no expectation that it would resonate as as strongly as it did
0: right i mean to the point where you're uh, going to the grammys this weekend
2: <laughs> right. yes i mean that's <laughs> uh, that is absolutely unbelievable and that's that's two things one it's it's you know uh we were nominated in the the special limited edition box set category for the for the design and you know, our the designer Lawrence Azarad did an absolutely exquisite job with this. You know, as he described it from the beginning, when I first reached out to him, is he said he wanted to create the ultimate album package of the ultimate album package, and mm. but it's also a testament, I think, to the to the people who created this forty years ago, that that you know this is still uh, a timeless. Work really that, that that resonates with people.
1: You know?
0: you know, speaking of resonate, there's this, there's a whole side I think of the record, which is or one of the records, which is the the sort of weird sounds of earth stuff, you sounds know, of earth, rain yeah, and frogs and things. But it opens with this weird sound. I mean, I didn't, I hadn't looked to see what it was. I just hear this like, uh, yes. and then I look and it says, "Music of the Spheres." What is music right. of the
2: spheres? You you, you so,
0: put a right. mic on Mars as it's spinning.
2: No, no. So that's <laughs> that's um, Laurie Spiegel, who was an electronic musician, who's still composing to this day, who's absolutely wonderful. Um, created that that piece. It's a it's a synthesized um, translation in some ways of Kepler's music of the spheres theory and and writings and so you know they commissioned her to create an electronic version of that and that's what it opens with that that sound poem uh, uh sounds of earth is also one of my favorite tracks on the record it reminds me of some you know piece of 70s avant-garde tape music and in some ways, that's what it is, you know, and, and Tim Ferriss described it to me when, when he and Annie Drianne put that together, is that they were in the recording studio with multiple people's hands on the mixing board, bringing tracks in and out and sort of conducting that like, like an orchestra. And that also has, you know, there's a, there's a great Radiolab piece where Annie Drianne tells the story. It has the recordings of her uh, EEG and, and other life signs sped up while she's meditating. And that's, that's part of that as well. And she was meditating on love and the story of our planet. And, you know, so that's just a, that's just a beautiful piece on there as well. But I mean, even, even the sounds of earth, you know, there's a story on there where you hear someone comforting a baby. And we ended up speaking with that person because we wanted to reach out to as many people as we could, who, who had contributed in some way to this, to this work.
0: Part of what makes it so uh, moving, I guess, is that we're living in a very digital media environment today. You know, one where we're not just distracted, but we're kind of disconnected, sort of floating over, most of us anyway, floating over the planet most of the time, and not really standing on our own two feet. And it feels almost as if we have to do archaeology on the present at this point just in order to touch ground you know it's like mm-hmm. like the 1970s it feels as if it's almost the last moment before we detached from terra firma and mm-hmm. and now through this project it's almost as if you know retrieving that era of space travel somehow restores our appreciation our our cognizance our awareness that oh right we're on a sphere, walking around—that this is our our the fundamental reality
2: of human existence—needs um, to be recalled. Well, I think that I think that's right, and I think that even when you start talking about you know really exciting you know futury concepts like you know colonization of other planets and space tourism, and then you have people coming back and saying, you know, hey, you know, we're talking about space, but we really need to be focused on what's going on on this planet and the devastation that we're causing, I think that's really good. I think that there's room for both, for for discovery and, and adventure and, and, you know, the wonder and, and scientific study of what's beyond our planet. But at the same time, if doing that causes us to think about, you know, where we actually are uh, and the only planet that we know as home, you know, I think that's that's a good thing. So I think that we can, we can do both. And I, and I, and I hope that we do, I hope that we're, you know, the pendulum is, is swinging back, although, you know, it, it, it sort of, you know, uh, uh, bounces back and forth quite a bit along the way.
0: Yeah. I mean, we may have reached the, the apogee of our kind of digital social media orbit (laughs) away from, away from the planet. I mean, we're both or certainly we were both uh, digital enthusiasts at, at the outset of the yeah, internet journey, boy. you know, but it feels now as if it kind of made everybody
2: crazy. <laughs> it's ama- I mean, what, what is amazing is that first of all, what's amazing to me is how big it got very quickly mm-hmm. um, digital culture and how much it permeated our lives so quickly. And quite honestly, I'm surprised. I, you know, we all sort of knew, even though we were optimists, that there would be some, you know, problems and unexpected, you know, consequences. But I feel like it's gotten worse than we could have ever suspected it would. <laughs> well, yeah. honestly, I mean,
0: I remember Timothy Leary early on saying, you know, that the net was LSD. You know, that the net is yeah. is psychedelic. So uh, now that the net has spread, we basically have everyone on the planet is living.
2: In a psychedelic substrate, in a sh- in a shared hallucination, right? That's we how, oh, absolutely.
0: We don't have the tools to navigate it. It's as if everybody in the world's having a bad trip because they haven't really explored the set and setting that they're bringing to this experience.
2: I think that's. I think that's that's very fair, I mean, I would love to. I, I wish I knew what Tim would, what Tim would think or what what Tim would say. You know, right now he was such a a, a mentor and a and a guiding light, really for for all of us beyond, you know, oh, he's the high priest of LSD, but I'm talking about much later about thinking of, of computers and personal computing and digital media as a way to empower the individual. I, I think that, that this idea of what it what it was and what it could be, you know, has really become lost. And I, I don't know, you know, I try to remain optimistic, but I, I don't know that the, what the way out is. I mean, things have really gotten so weird. I mean, social media is really anti-social media, and I, you know, I, I just don't know what the what the answer is. And I and I and so I think that's one another one of the things to tie it back to the record or to tie it back to records in general is that the more time we spend, which is almost all of our time in these virtual mediated experiences and these shared hallucinations, the more we yearn for physical, visceral connections to to people. And to things.
0: Right. It's just, uh, you know, then some people, they get wealthy enough to then hop on a jet and go have some rainforest experience that does not scale.
2: <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, and, absolutely and, it doesn't.
0: You know, but the ground under their feet, the eyes of the person in the next room... You know that's really the the intense human connection that's that's available to everybody all
2: the time. Well, and that do, that does scale. That's right. And and yeah, that's right. I can't hop on a jet and waste all that fuel and go have lunch in the rainforest, but you know I can go for a, a walk among the trees, or or the people who do backyard gardening or farming, or these kinds of things. To me, that's or or to or people who are making you know the maker movement. I mean, to me, those are all. Part of the same thing, really, about about making that sort of you know uh, uh, visceral connection with the physicality beyond the mediation of, of technology.
0: Right. You just turn off my Bitcoin mining rig for 20 minutes and hold hands with right. my partner.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's almost like instead of turn on, tune in, drop out, we need to turn on, tune in, and then turn off. Right. Right.
0: Which is funny. I mean, in some ways, it's the same thing. It's, it's it's space really taught us to regard our own planet differently, and and cyberspace really teaches us to uh, uh, engage with real space differently.
2: I think that's yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, and you know, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens as cyberspace continues to seep into, <laughs> into real space. Yeah.
0: All right. well David, thanks so much for being on Team Human.
2: I'm so honored. I I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was Institute for the Future Director of Research and producer of the Voyager Golden Record, David Peskovitz. And don't forget, next week we will be recording live at the Gray Area Organization's Grand Theater in San Francisco on Friday, February 16th, and Saturday, February 17th. You are all welcome to come, either as Team Human members for free or as supporters of Gray Area for $20. Go to grayarea.org to get your tickets. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolomé. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peace.